Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was a social cinema screening that took place on June 14th, 2016, and is titled Trapped, and features Marilyn Ness, producer of Trapped, Stephanie Toddy, senior counsel at the Center for Reproductive Rights and lead counsel for Whole Woman's Health v. Cole, Dr. Jillian Dean, associate professor at the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Science at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and physician director of clinical research at Planned Parenthood of New York City, and Amy Littlefield, producer of Democracy Now! I think as we think about legislative control being exercised over bodies, it's important to look at the fact that so far this year, we've had over 400 pieces of anti-choice legislation introduced um, in legislatures across the country. We've also had over 200 pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation introduced. Um, and you all have just been learning about HB2 in Texas, the, the critical law that has closed half of clinics in the state and is now before the Supreme Court and could determine the future of abortion access in this country. We also have HB2 in North Carolina, um, which is the law that tells transgender people where they can and cannot um, go to the bathroom in public. So um, I just wanted to mention that as we, as we think about the broader context. Um, so I'm gonna stop talking now and introduce our panel. Um, I'm very privileged to be joined by Marilyn Ness, who is the producer of Trapped. Um, Stephanie Todi is the um, is senior counsel at the Center for Reproductive Rights and the lead attorney on Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstead, which is the <laughs> case before the Supreme Court and which Stephanie argued as her first ever case before the court back in March. And um, we're also joined by Dr. Jillian Dean, who is um, a senior clinical research director at Planned Parenthood in New York City and an abortion provider herself. So um, I want to start by asking Marilyn to talk a little bit about the genesis of this film, how it came about, um, and, and why you thought it was an important film to make. So Dawn Porter had been working on another film down in Mississippi, and she tells the story how she likes to read the local paper. And she was reading that there was the one abortion clinic left in the whole state of Mississippi and sort of couldn't wrap her brain around that and thought, let me go figure out why. And so she, as a filmmaker would do, went to the clinic and began asking them questions and then met um, Dr. Parker, who was providing abortions in that state and then traveling to others. Um, and so Dawn started the film, and then I didn't come on for another year. Um, and, and actually, she tried to get me to produce the film for a while, and I kept saying no, I was busy. I was on a couple of projects. And finally, Dawn's very busy and always a little bit late. And so we were having a meeting. She was a little bit late. She's like, hop in my car. We'll go look for parking. And she started telling me this. I was like, why do we need another abortion film? There were a number of them after Tiller was out recently. Um, there were some really good films already in the canon about abortion access. And then she began to unravel to me the fact that Roe v. Wade essentially didn't matter in some states in the country increasingly, and it was sort of sweeping. And when I began to get that information, I was first alarmed that how, as a reasonably educated woman who 
cares about reproductive choice didn't understand that that was transpiring around the country so quickly, I, I then decided, okay, I needed to, to get on board to help the film get made. Um, and then we've just watched it in the years it took to make the film just like wildfire through states. And when I saw this film, because I knew that hundreds of anti-choice bills had passed all across the country, I was sort of expecting a survey. I mean, you could have made this in many different states, um, but it does something so much more powerful, which is to focus on a handful of people and also on a handful of patients, you know, and, and their stories so that you see the other side and, and the impact of the work. Could you talk about how you honed in on these characters and why you decided to focus on not all 50 states, but, but just a few? Um, so, so Dawn, actually, her previous film, Gideon's Army, focused on public defenders in the South. And I think she really had a keen awareness that sometimes the, the change makers are not the people who normally get profiled. Um, and she had, a when upon meeting the abortion providers, realized that there were people who consider themselves just everyday, you know, workers, right? They go to work, they open their clinic, they close their clinic, they provide services, they move on. They never considered themselves heroes, and yet they were standing in defiance on the front line. Um, and not just on the front line of the, uh, the protesters that are in front of their clinic every day, um, but also now on the front line of legislators who had become the new enemy. Um, and I think she felt it was really important to understand their stories. And then for us in filmmaking, meeting one person and knowing them and loving them deeply is very different than, than understanding the giant landscape. And we thought what little news coverage there was was probably doing the survey of how many states were falling state by state, that, that the best service we could provide was to actually show normal people waging a normal war, <laughs> or what had become a normal war, in the fight for reproductive choice. And I think it was effective. They're lovable, and you're rooting for them, and you sort of understand the deep implications on a very human level of people who will lose their jobs and who weep when they can no longer provide the service that they considered routine. Um, so hopefully they're the best, now the best uh, voice for this cause, and the film was just the segue to them. Um, I want to turn to Stephanie and ask some of the questions that many of us who follow this issue are probably thinking about right now. So on March 2nd, you did something remarkable. You went to the Supreme Court. You argued this case, which is the most important abortion case in a generation and, and could determine the future of, of abortion rights in, in the United States. Um, I was there with 3,000 people outside the Supreme Court um, gathering to, I was there working as a journalist, but many, many people gathering to cheer you on, um, including Dr. Parker and some of the people we saw in this film. Um, now it's June and we're expecting a decision um, in this case. Can you talk about what's at stake here, the potential outcomes, and, and when you expect we'll see those outcomes um, come down from the court? Sure, um, and thank you for joining outside the courthouse. It was really an amazing scene that day to see so many people from such diverse backgrounds coming together to really celebrate reproductive choice. Um, we are expecting a decision from the court pretty much any day now. Uh, the court announces its decisions on set days, so it's scheduled to announce decisions on Thursday of this week and Monday of the following week, and then it will likely add next Thursday, and then uh, several days the week after that. So we'll, we'll have a decision by the end of June. That's when the court recesses for the summer. Um, so stay tuned until then. 
But the stakes in this case could not be higher. It will determine the immediate access to reproductive health care for 5.4 million women of reproductive age in Texas. But the case will also have ripple effects throughout the country because as we, as we learned from the film, so many states have enacted copycat laws. So it will determine the future of abortion access for wide regions of the country. And you know, just in Texas, the law right now is partially in effect. So the Supreme Court intervened twice at earlier stages of the case to prevent the law from being fully implemented, but they allowed it to be partially implemented. So prior to the enactment of the law, there were more than 40 abortion clinics in Texas, and they were geographically dispersed throughout the state. With partial implementation of the law, that number dropped to 19. So more than half of the clinics have been forced to close, and if the law is fully implemented, that number would further drop to nine. So there would be nine clinics in the entire state of Texas, and they would all be clustered in the state's four largest metropolitan areas. So that's Dallas-Fort Worth, Austin, Houston, and San Antonio. If you're not familiar with Texas geography, those cities are pretty much all clustered in, in the northeastern part of the state. So there wouldn't be a single abortion provider anywhere south of San Antonio or west of San Antonio. And that's a geographic area that's larger than the entire state of California. There wouldn't be a single abortion provider. And that's just Texas. Um, there are similar laws in Louisiana and Oklahoma, which both border Texas, um, just making it impossible for some women in that region to access abortion care. So even now, um, with half of the clinics still operating, we're seeing tremendous wait times for an appointment in, in some parts of Texas. So a woman calls up to make an appointment at an abortion clinic, and the earliest appointment she can get is two to three weeks in the future. So women who can afford to go out of the state for abortion care are doing that. And we're hearing from women all the time that they're flying to New York or California or Florida in order to access abortion in a, in a timely fashion. But for women who, who can't afford to do that um, and who now live hundreds of miles from the nearest provider, we're, we're increasingly hearing about women attempting to take matters into their own hands. Um, if the number of, of clinics in Texas drops to nine, there's going to be a full-blown public health crisis on the ground there. But I am optimistic about our chances in the Supreme Court based on the court's prior intervention in the case and based on the kinds of questions the justices were asking at the oral argument. I think, I think we've succeeded in demonstrating both the harm that this law would cause to women but also the utter lack of any medical justification for the law. And nearly every leading medical association in the country, including the AMA, which is very influential with the courts, has come out to condemn the Texas law and the, the copycat laws in other states as totally unrelated to medicine or science and, and as just purely political. And so we are, we are hopeful, I am hopeful, that the court will see these laws for the sham that they are and, and will strike down the Texas law and send a clear message to courts across the country that the other laws should be struck down as well.
two weeks before you argued this case, Justice Antonin Scalia, who was one of the most anti-abortion members of the court, passed away. And so how does that... <laughs> Um, how, how does that change the stakes that we're looking at? We have this unique situation now where we have an eight-member court and there's the possibility of a, a deadlock. What would that mean for women in Texas and across the country, potentially? So I, I got the news about Justice Scalia's passing um, while out to dinner with my family. Was, he, he, he passed on my mother's birthday. So I was at this big family dinner and my, my phone started blowing up. And I, you know, I was trying not to look at it because you know, I was in the middle of this family dinner. Um, but after about 45 minutes, I'm like, what is going on? You know, and then and I look and I see what happens and I'm, you know, I'm telling my family and there, you know, there are no other lawyers in my family. Um, and they're, they're, they're all supportive of the work that I do, but kind of you know, from a distance. And so I said, you know, Justice Scalia passed away. And they're like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Did you know him? <laughs> um, and I had to excuse myself and go call someone. <laughs> um, but um, Justice Scalia's absence is, is unlikely to have any impact on the outcome of the whole women's health case. In order to prevail in the case, we need five votes. Um, and you know, all along we needed five votes, we still need five votes, and we had never expected that Justice Scalia would, would be one of those five votes. Um, so you know, there, there is, um, you know, there's been speculation, what if the court you know, splits four to four? If that were to happen, it, it would be a loss for us because it, an evenly divided court means that the decision from the appeals court below is affirmed by default. And that appeals court ruled against us. It's a very conservative appeals court. Um, but those orders where the court is evenly divided, those orders typically come out right away, usually within a week or 10 days of oral <laughs> argument. And in other cases, this term where the court has evenly divided, um, we, we got those orders within a week. And so the fact that it's been more than two months since the oral argument now, and we haven't gotten an order like that, um, you know, suggests that there, there will be a majority opinion. Um, Stephanie, how did you prepare for this case? It was your first Supreme Court case ever. It was my first Supreme Court case ever. Uh, there, there, I, I did a lot of intense preparation and I, I had help from um, a, a really great group of lawyers on my team and we were able to bring in Supreme Court experts um, from different parts of the country, lawyers with a, a lot of experience arguing before the court. Um, we had several former U.S. Solicitors General um, who participated in moot courts. Those are sort of practice arguments where other lawyers pretend to be the justices and, and fire questions at you. I said after the actual argument that before all of those moot courts, I should have run on the treadmill for 20 minutes and then come immediately to the moot court so my heart was racing and that would have been a better uh, simulation of what the real experience was like. <laughs> Um, but there were, I mean, we did a ton of moot courts. Um, you know, we gamed out sort of every different, you know, set of questions and answers that we thought the justices could possibly ask. And I listened to a lot of audio from former, you know, from prior Supreme Court cases. So it's all archived, it's all available online. There's no video from inside the Supreme Court, but all of the arguments are, are recorded and you can hear the audio. And so I downloaded it all on my phone. 
Um, and so I, I had abandoned all my podcasts and instead, you know, every day on the subway or at the grocery store, at the gym, I was listening to Supreme Court audio. But it, it helped, um, helped sort of get the justices' voices in my head and get a feel for the cadence of the questions and the kinds of things they would be likely to ask. You go on vacation after? Yes, I did. <laughs> I have a good friend that lives in Barbados, actually. I spent a week with him. Um, so I want to turn to you, Dr. Jillian Dean. Um, you know, as an abortion provider, I'm wondering what it was like to, to watch Trapped and, and to, to see these providers in action. You know, you work here in New York, which is obviously a blue state. You don't have some of the same sweeping restrictions that we see in Alabama, Texas, and Mississippi. And yet, still, there's a lot of stigma and, and misconception around abortion. We, we see those scenes, for example, where June Ayers is, is kind of trying to alleviate some of the concerns that her patient has about abortion based on, on what she's heard. Um, I'm wondering um, how you navigate some of those those myths and, and stigma as an abortion provider, which I would imagine transcend even, even here in New York City? Well, the first thing is that it makes me incredibly grateful to be providing, is this on? Hello? Okay, sorry. Um, it just makes me incredibly grateful to be providing in a place like New York City. I've only provided in friendly environments. I provided in San Francisco as a resident and fellow and now in New York City. Um, so first and foremost, I'm just in awe of and incredibly grateful to my colleagues who struggle with these kind of obstacles on a daily basis. And I not only encounter it in the film, but also when I see them at conferences and we do meet up frequently at national conferences to talk about reproductive health issues. And it's astounding what a divided country we live in that, um, a patient can access a service here in New York that um, is, you know, she can she has a, such a different access to a, her legal right to make a reproductive health decision here compared to in another city. It's all based on zip code. For instance, in New York City, we're one of um, a small handful of states where our state kicks in Medicaid funding for abortion, so we can provide. Um, insurance coverage for abortions for patients who cannot pay or who do not have insurance that covers it. That's rare. Most states do not offer that. And it's purely a state program. There's no federal dollar going into that Medicaid payment for abortion. Um, I have patients who can pretty much walk unimpeded into my healthcare facility in, um, in NoHo or um, in Brooklyn, in um, Queens, um, in the Bronx, in Staten Island. They encounter very few protesters. That's not the case elsewhere. Um, I live completely out of the closet. Um, I go to parent cocktail parties and people know that I am an abortion provider. I, I get embraced. I don't face harassment and stigma from my community. So, um, so everything I'm gonna say is, is you know, with that background of just feeling very, very fortunate and very aware of um, my colleagues' struggles elsewhere. But even so, even in New York, our patients face stigma, and stigma leads to misinformation. Um, one of the stories that I find really just resonated with me about how it, 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 this story brought together both the impact of stigma 
and also the dire need for abortion. I had a patient who came in, she went through the um, preoperative information session with our health educators um, at Planned Parenthood, and then she you know, went through our medical clearance process and she comes to me, we're in the um, procedure room, and she's about to go to sleep on the table and she said, am I going to die? And I thought, well, here she just went through an informed consent process when she was told her wrists were infection, bleeding. We don't, I mean, the risk of death is so much less with abortion compared to childbirth or um, a shot of penicillin. Um, it's one of the safest procedures a person can have. And she carried that fear with her all the way to the point where she almost fell asleep, and yet she needed this abortion so much that she was willing to have it even while she was holding that fear in her heart. So stigma led to that crazy misinformation about her risk of death, um, and her dire need for it led her to pursue it regardless. And that was just really touched me. I'm so glad you brought up the issue of funding. Um, I volunteer here in New York for the New York Abortion Access Fund, which is a, um, a fund like many that exist nationwide that um, provide grants to people who, even with Medicaid funding, struggle to afford the cost of an abortion. Um, so, you know, even when all the stars are aligned and, and where we don't have these restrictions in New York, sometimes it, it is still um, a difficult service to access. Um, and I have also had the experience of working in two different states, one that did have Medicaid funding, which was Massachusetts, thanks to Governor Mitt Romney, there's full coverage for abortion under the state's Medicaid plan. Um, but in, in Rhode Island, where I also worked, there was not. And so a lot of my work as, a, as an abortion counselor was spent trying to fundraise. Um, for those patients, and so that's because of the Hyde Amendment, which is the long-standing, decades-old ban on, on federal funding for abortion. That's one of many, many restrictions that um, patients face. Um, I wonder if you could talk about why you decided to become an abortion provider. Um, well, I've never said this in front of this many people, but I became an abortion provider because when I was 19, I needed one myself, and I thought, wow, what an incredible thing to do for another person. This um, changed my life. I was in college, I was 19. I had, um, I had taking, I decided to take some time off from Wesleyan to figure out why, you know, what I wanted to get out of my education. And I was gonna volunteer in battered women's shelters that I, as I'd been doing. And I thought, oh, but that's just, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard emotionally, and I thought, wow, this is something that I find incredibly uplifting. And I, when I tell people that I find it very uplifting to provide abortions, they're always surprised. They think it must be so sad. But I have somebody come to me with a terrible problem, and I, within minutes, can fix that problem, give her tools to prevent it happening again, give her her life back, her future back, allow her to pursue her dreams. That is a really, really powerful feeling. And I like to fix problems. So it ended up being a good fit. I'm passionate about the issue. Um, I like working with my hands, I like working with people, and I like fixing problems. And I like being there for women when they need the help so much. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for doing it. Um, Marilyn, I wonder if you could talk about the reception this film has received. It's had a massive effort to roll it out in not just places like New York City here, but 
all across the country, including in the states that are documented in the film. Um, can you talk about how you did that, how you tried to spread the word about this film, you know, especially with the Supreme Court case coming down the pipeline and um, some of the issues that you've met along the way? So um, we were fortunate that we were following the case that turned out to be heading to the Supreme Court and we realized we had a real opportunity. And when we got into Sundance Film Festival this past January, we knew we had five months to kind of make hay with the film and really make sure that we were educating people about trap laws um, around the country. We didn't, you know, there's articles that are coming out, but again, a film is accessible and human in a way that sometimes articles aren't. And so we made a very concerted effort to make sure that the film could be seen anywhere a person could engage with it. And so we did a number of things, and actually a bunch of distributors chose to work very differently with this film because they felt it was also important to, that there was an obligation to get the word out about the film. And so PBS actually rushed the film on the air. It'll be on this coming Monday, June, tw or is that this coming Monday? Yeah, we're in, under a week now. June 20th at 10 p.m. in most places. I'll get to the places it isn't in a second. So they, they foreshortened their schedule by almost a year to have the film on the air at the right time. And then we worked with a theatrical distributor who agreed to get it into theaters. So by March, when you were arguing the case, we were opening in theaters in New York, which is a very short timetable between Sundance and theatrical. We opened in about 20 cities over the course of, or 25 cities over the course of four weeks. And simultaneously, we were playing at film festivals, also unusual to be in the theater and at film festivals at the same time. And then simultaneous with that, we got community screening organizers to organize screenings so that if you couldn't see it in a theater but you heard about it in the news, you could go somewhere, whether a festival, the theater, or to a community screening that could have been organized by you yourself um, to see the film. And so we've had, I think we're up to over 300 screenings organized just by people who understood that this was important and brought it to their area. And we were able to organize days of action in places like Indiana where the trap laws had just passed. And so people really didn't know what had hit them. And we got you know, five conservative localities to host screenings and educate their community. And people then began volunteering in whatever capacity made sense to help support reproductive choice in their area. So we've been very proud of that effort. As we head on to the PBS broadcast, which um, you know, PBS has a mandate to publicly educate um, but all 350 stations essentially operate somewhat individually and have the choice whether or not to broadcast the film. And so we've had a, a, a big disparity in who will run it at the 10 p.m. time and who won't run it. And there have been some surprises. So we're so in Alabama, where three of our providers, three of the providers in the film, um, are, you know, this is impacting their state directly. They're choosing to run the film at 2 a.m. on June 22nd. <laughs> So we did not regard that as friendly. So we have gone about organizing screenings in Alabama. The providers will be attending some of the screenings. We don't, we don't release where for their safety, but there will be a place where they can be celebrated and the work that they do will be recognized. Um, and then, but, but then conversely, and much to our surprise, like Oklahoma that just had a ter terrible trap laws instituted, maybe not the worst one that directly made abortion illegal. I think really? that right. one they didn't manage. Um, they are hosting this, they are running the screening at, at the right time on June 20th at 10 p.m. because there is a mandate as with a PBS station to inform the public. That's why they're there, whether you agree or disagree. So we are doing our part to make sure that there are screenings around the country. I think there's going to be over 100 screenings on the night of the broadcast. And then this film will be streaming beginning the very next day on PBS for 14 days so that it's free 
uh, you know, tell people about it, go see it, do what you can to get the word out um, and send people to trapdocumentary.com and they can learn more about how they can see the film in their area. One of the things that I'd imagine is resonating in a lot of these red states where you're showing the film is um, the way that you portray faith and religion. Um, and to me, one of the most powerful aspects of Trapped is the way that it sort of reclaims faith. Um, I mean, there are, were a few moments in the film where I was tricked into thinking, you know, I would hear someone praying and think it was the, the anti-choice Operation Save America folks who'd gathered in the clinic, but no, it was June Ayers and her staff who were, you know, praying ahead of this day. Or, you know, when you hear the gospel music come up as the man's packing away his cross and then you see Dr. Willie Parker in church. Um, can you talk about deciding to kind of center religion in the, in the film? Um, so often it's seen as kind of the domain of the religious right. Right. I, th I think people think you have to make a choice between being to have faith or to have an abortion. And so many of the providers are so deep, so deeply believe in their faith and in fact rely on it as the reason why they provide abortion. And so it felt important to us. We, we didn't go to the, I mean, we had to go to the protesters outside the clinic some because that is the reality of their existence. But we didn't want to do all the same tropes of like, it's just these people that are protesting in front and they're the ones holding up the cross. And so we, it felt important to us and it felt true to who Dr. Parker was. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in the film always has been Callie, the nurse, praying over that woman who decides to go have her abortion. Um, and they pr kind of pray together, her mother's in heaven. And, and that... I, that to me just was the center of humanity in whatever form you choose to do that, whether you have faith or you don't, and it belongs in the clinic. Um, so we were proud to bring it in and it was really important to Dr. Parker. I wanna add one other thing though, cause I think one of the things that, you know, I learned this from Dr. Parker, that yes, people are deciding based on their zip codes, you know, whether or have access to abortion on their zip codes, but even further still, it's, it's also a race and class issue now because increasingly people who can afford abortion can travel elsewhere, but even within these states. So Dr. Parker shared a statistic that last year in Mississippi, he performed 2,000 abortions in the only abortion clinic in the state, but the Department of Health registered 8,000 abortions, which meant people who had access, who had doctors who were willing to take them quietly and provide that service can get it. And then it's just the people who are left to their only recourse to healthcare is to call the clinic or go to the emergency room or you know, go in the phone book and find, find a provider. They don't have access to it. And increasingly that is along racial lines and class lines. And I think that was another reason Don Porter felt it was really important to, to have the film told in these stories in these states was that you needed to start seeing the disparity and the inequalities of power, of wealth that all were having an impact um, in the course of these trap laws being passed. And, that to me is sort of also unbelievable. We keep, we just keep doing it systemically. We just keep doing it. Um, Stephanie, could you talk a little bit about kind of next steps, um, both in terms of this decision that we're waiting for from the Supreme Court, you know, what, what the next steps would be in either scenario, but also are there states that you're watching now, you know, as the Center for Reproductive Rights kind of monitors um, legislation across the country? I mean, as Marilyn mentioned, Oklahoma almost banned abortion altogether. They've now passed a law mandating anti-choice propagandas, public education materials and PSAs. Um, what what are you um, what are you looking at in sort of the months and, and years ahead? Sure. So this this decision will have a big impact on what we're able to do to dismantle the 
anti-choice infrastructure that's sort of sprung up around the country in recent years. Um, I've been at the Center for Reproductive Rights for 10 years now. I started in 2006, just before the Supreme Court heard the last big abortion case, um, which was Gonzalez v. Carhartt, about a federal ban on a certain method of second trimester abortion. And in that case, the court issued a, you know, it was a terrible decision. It upheld the ban, and it used some really patronizing language about women. Um, the court said, while there's no reliable data to measure the phenomenon, you know, we, we, we think it's, it's highly likely that many women come to regret their abortions. And basically, as a result of that, you know, states need to take measures to prevent, to protect women from their own faulty decision making. And this, <clears throat> this decision kind of threw open the floodgates to, you know, these, these trap laws um, and other laws around the country restricting access to abortion, sort of chipping away. So, um, so most states have not tried to ban abortion outright, but instead they've enacted all of these measures that just make it practically impossible for women to access. And, you know, in the wake of that Supreme Court decision for, you know, legal organizations like the center, then it becomes very difficult um, to go in and challenge these laws because you think, well, if the Supreme Court, you know, upholds it, so now one or two states have enacted a bad law, but if the Supreme Court upholds it, then, you know, 20 more states are going to enact them. So it's sort of a you know, we started bringing more uh, challenges in state courts and using different strategies. Um, but I feel like now we've kind of come full circle. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the anti-choice folks, you know, they, they, they had an inch and they, they took a mile. And I think they've just, they've gone too far now. And I think this last round of trap laws has really exposed their, their strategy for what it is. Um, and so I think if the Supreme Court strikes down the Texas law, it will enable us to go into other states and attack the laws that have sprung up there. And, you know, there's also a vacancy on the court right now. And depending on how that vacancy gets filled, the court could have a pro-choice majority for the first time in 30 years. Um, and that also, uh, you know, provides, could, could provide potentially a really powerful deterrent to anti-choice laws. So at this point, I'm, you know, I'm very hopeful about the future. I feel like the, the last 10 years, um, you know, we've, we've been playing defense and there's a real opportunity now for people who believe in, in reproductive choice and reproductive justice to go on offense, and I think this this case and the film and other, you know, events going on right now have really energized the public, and and people I think are more aware and more engaged on this issue than they've been in a long time. So, we, will you have to go state by state to try to get the trap laws repealed, or or do it through the judicial process? Like, I know if the if we lose then there's just be sweeping trap laws that pass the country, but there's no equivalent if you win to get each of these trap laws passed away. Unfortunately, no, it's gonna be a state by state process. So like for marriage equality, when the court ruled that um, you know, bans on same-sex marriage were unconstitutional, every ban across the country you know, was immediately invalidated. 
Um, you know, and, and under Roe v. Wade, every ban on abortion was immediately invalidated. But the standard for judging trap laws is more nuanced um, and it's, it's fact specific. So it won't be the case that because the court strikes down one trap law, they will all automatically be stricken. Um, every, every court in every state is going to have to inquire about, is this particular law medically justified and how much of a burden is it imposing on women? So the legal standard governing abortion regulations is called the undue burden standard. So you have to look at what is the burden that's being imposed and is that burden undue? Um, and in, in this context, we've argued that undue means not medically justified. If the, if the burden isn't serving any medical purpose, then there's no point, then it's just an obstacle. Um, but it, it will be a state-by-state -state strategy and we'll either have to litigate those laws in court, and many of them there's, you know, there's litigation already pending, or we'll have to try to repeal them through a legislative process. Election really matters. <laughs> so I think we could open up to questions from the audience. Um, if you have a question, um, please raise your hand. Go ahead. Hi. I have two questions. The easy one is um, you said the, that there were 8,000 abortions that were provided in Alabama, but uh, I think it's Alabama, but only 2,000 were at these clinics. So the 6,000 other ones could be done in an office without surgical procedures, or did they? So how did they get around that law? As far as I understand, through Dr. Parker, so I was, this was in Mississippi, you can provide abortions safely. Maybe they were earlier. I mean, maybe this is a question for the doctor. Um, but he, he, he was not providing them in this clinic that was being particularly legislated. But people get reproductive health care in other places, your GYN or other places. So, but let's throw to you, how would it be possible? So if the, um, assuming that they were provided in compliance with these trap laws, they probably were provided in operating rooms. So that let's say you went to see your um, private gynecologist with an unplanned and unwanted pregnancy. Your gynecologist would say, okay, I've got surgical block time on Tuesday. I'll book you for Tuesday. And you would follow a hysterectomy and, you know, that kind of thing. So you would be done in, a, in an operating room setting, and that would be in compliance with the laws. And now the more complicated question. Um, your discussion and in the film that the abortion providers were um, doing something in, in accordance with their religious beliefs strikes me that could be used legally as um, the, that they have the right to practice their religion, just like some bakery who doesn't want to make um, cakes for, excuse me? Freedom of, religion. Freedom of religion. And I'm wondering if there's any thought to um, just working on that. And I, I just, it, if, it, if you two hadn't been sitting next to one another and hadn't come up, I wouldn't have thought of it myself. But it just seems like somebody who said that this is, this is mandated by their God and their church um, should have the right to do it, and the court should uphold that. I'm not the legal person. Can I just say one thing? I think the issue is that abortion is still legal. It's just not accessible. And that's what these trap laws do. Um, so I don't know if that speaks to what you were going to say, and I'll let, I'll let the lawyer take it from there. 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely it's a it's a legal argument that we've been thinking about and sort of experimenting with. It's it's not an argument that um, has precedent in the courts, so it's not something historically that we've seen as a basis for abortion rights. But um, it is it is definitely something that we've been looking at. Um, and I, I do have a, a pair of clients in Kansas who, um, I mean, the abortion providers in Kansas are, are under siege, you know, as much as anywhere else right now. Um, and they argued um, Kansas enacted a, a, a law two years ago that imposed all, all sorts of penalties on abortion providers. And, you know, there were tax penalties. Um, and there is a provision that said that they couldn't volunteer at a public school. And so, I mean, what, you know, one, one of the providers had kids in public school and now she couldn't chaperone their field trips anymore. Um, and in, in that case, we, um, you know, they made a claim about their religious rights and that this, you know, this law was um, penalizing them for acting on their religious beliefs. And we don't, you know, that the case is still working its way through the court system, so we don't know what the outcome will be. But it's, it's definitely something that, that we're thinking about, and I think something that, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably hear more about. In the case that's at the Supreme Court, we had a big outpouring of support from people in the faith community, and there were a number of amicus briefs. Um, amicus briefs are, are friend of the court briefs. They're filed by people who aren't directly involved in the litigation, but feel like they have a stake in the outcome. Um, and there were a number of amicus briefs filed by faith leaders, theologians, um, faith-based advocacy groups, um, you know, to let the court know that this issue isn't simply, you know, religious people versus non-religious people, but that there are, you know, religious people on both sides of this issue, and um, that, you know, that, that those voices should be heard. I would, I would add one thing. You actually saw Dr. Parker do this very clever thing where he exercised his freedom of speech. So in, I think that was in Mississippi, he had to say that having an abortion could increase your risk of breast cancer. And then he says, I don't really agree with that. I don't believe it or something. So he has to say it by law, but by law, he's also allowed to say what he thinks about it. And he'll do that every time he's like constantly trying to figure out what the way is to, you know, he may have to do it in order to practice and provide services, but if there's a way around it, he's gonna do that too. Hi, thanks so much for being here and for your work. As Marilyn mentioned earlier, a lot of smart, progressive, informed people don't realize the pace of what's taking place. Where would you recommend interested people go for a focus list of where they can donate time or funds or other ways of increasing awareness? So, so trapdocumentary.com is trying to be um, a clearinghouse of sorts, so we link to partner groups, but I know Center for Reproductive Rights has links on their website, Planned Parenthood has links on their website. There's lots of organizations that you can go state by state and get to partners. I mean, we've actually partnered with many of them, so it is it is a good place to start just with the film's website and branch out, um, and you'll get, you might have to work your way through different partner groups to get local action. Um, we're also, there are some partners on the site who who are trying to kind of name and shame legislators who are both pro and anti-choice. And so um, for people who are trying to do work around the election, again, you're gonna have to go a couple of layers in through partners, but you can get that information um, you know, for, for what you might wanna do in your area. Other resources. 
Um, Physicians for Reproductive Health also is a great organization that does a lot of lobbying, um, has funds and resources to protect physicians, and, um, and to help get physicians into the media speaking on behalf of reproductive rights and justice, and not only working with abortion providers, but working with all physicians. Yeah. Uh, I think that the most important, the, the key pivotal issue is on the definition of what life is. Is there any medical scientific definition and any legal definition on, on what life is? Because if we could agree on that, I think we could have consensus on, the, on, on, uh, on that issue. <laughs> and, 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 and also because the, the, uh, the Constitution says that life is, 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 is the ultimate uh, you know, well, I mean, I'm, I don't think we could mess with that, so. So, if anyone's actually read the, the Roe v. Wade decision, um, the court actually spent a lot of time trying to unpack this question, and it looks at it historically, it looks at what the, the positions of medical associations have been over time, what different civilizations have, what position they've taken. Um, it, you know, it looks at some of the, the theological positions over time. And the court says in Roe, you know, this is an issue that has divided philosophers, theologians, scientists um, for centuries and centuries, and we're we're not gonna we're not gonna resolve it here. You know, if if all of these, you know, so many brilliant people in so many different disciplines can't come to consensus on, you know, what is the meaning of life and what does it mean, you know, to be human life then you know, the, the, the court isn't gonna be able to do that. Um, and it, it's, it's said you know, there, and, and in its subsequent abortion jurisprudence, precisely because there is, is so much uncertainty about this issue and because it's informed not simply by objective factors but also by religious beliefs, by ethical beliefs, that people need the freedom to make that determination for themselves. And it's not something for the government to decree, but it's something for every person to be able to, to decide for themselves. And that's part of what the dignity of, of human life is, is to be able to make these important decisions um, for oneself. I appreciate you guys coming out and taking the time. I hope you'll spread the word about the film that people will watch June 20th. And vote, vote, vote your choice. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.